This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Now let's talk about the Cullen Commission getting back to work. This is the commission looking into money laundering here in BC. Joining us now is Sam Cooper uh, to give us an update on that, our global news investigative reporter. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. So lots for the Cullen Commission to talk about. It sounds like this story hasn't gone away, at least in other parts of the country. No, that's right. Uh, uh, the the commission uh, kicks into gear again this week. We're going to hear from uh surveillance staff that are inside uh, some of the casinos that were subject of this massive money laundering. And what this investigation that we've broken today gets at is uh, we have found uh, what our sources call incredible linkages between uh, Markham Underground Casinos. And some of your listeners will have seen those images from Ontario. Yes. A 53 a room mansion. Yeah. People will recognize some of those big marble columns, uh, the marble floors. These things look like they're, as one of my sources say, uh, uh, sort of Roman architectural style. And what has happened is with the crackdown on B.C. lottery casino money laundering that that, uh, the B.C. NDP government enacted, suspicious cash really dropped in B.C. government casinos. That's the good news. The bad news is the the drug trafficking, the fentanyl trafficking, the transnational gangs haven't gone away at all, and they're pouring their proceeds allegedly through underground casinos. Now, we have found that the suspects in this Markham uh, transnational organized crime network with links to China are very closely linked to the e-pirate suspects in the BC casinos. And uh, once we got those facts, it just it, it brought up a whole other layer of what looks like political connectivity between some uh, influence groups that are uh, allegedly being directed from Beijing, very tightly connected with the casino money mm-hmm. launders and the organized crime across Canada. Interesting. So is it fair to say that some of it left BC and then found its way to these underground casinos in places like Ontario? Absolutely. Uh, there's no doubting that. Uh, my police uh, sources say that uh, very quickly after that cash was cracked down on in uh, casinos like River Rock Casino in Richmond, a lot of these underground mansion casinos started to pop up. More in Richmond, also Markham, Ontario, is a hot spot. And we're talking about these aren't gambling dens. These are mansions of 20,000 square feet. And uh, your listeners will recognize that uh, this has been an issue with Richmond farmland, some of these massive sprawling mansions. And look, we have to say that when a mansion of that size and that architecture, police are looking at it with suspicion because there are enough of them that are uh, laundering drug cash. You'd think that this would be so noticeable, right? Like you'd think if they're a 53 room mansion where they're having an illegal casino, wouldn't neighbors have noticed something? Like, don't these stick out more? They absolutely stick out. Everyone can recognize them. I'm sure that uh, many people, when they drive by, say, wow, that's a lucky person. I wonder how they make their money. 
And uh, look, the police are looking at it that way. But uh, to boil it down, the RCMP simply doesn't have the resources to tackle what what is known to be a growing problem in Canada with transnational crime. Look, this is the subject of the Cullen Commission money laundering. Vancouver has absolutely become a global hub for drug trafficking and money laundering. And we are learning, again, that Markham, Ontario appears to be a a very strong hotspot. And it is brazen activity, as you say. Shouldn't you be able to notice it? But what we're learning here is that it appears that some of the people uh, involved seem to have some political insulation. Certainly in China, they do. So is the Ontario government not concerned about this, Sam? We know that the York Regional Police appear to be, uh, look, they appear to be doing strong work. We could even say they seem to be making more progress than the federal RCMP. Uh, so that, that is interesting in itself. We haven't yet heard from uh, the Ontario government specifically with regards to the illegal casinos in Markham. Uh, I think uh, people in Ontario were, are still sort of shaking their heads with a bit of shock and awe when they see the images of this 53-bedroom mansion. And again, let's not forget that uh, the alleged mastermind is pictured with our Prime Minister in relation to uh, donations. And uh, another level of my story in BC is we have found that uh, Justin Trudeau uh, met with and received donations from what is called Suspect 2 in uh, RCMP investigations related to men that we have talked about, Paul King, Jin, and others active in BC casinos and underground banking, uh-huh. allegedly. Right. Sam, okay, thank you. We'll check out the rest of the story. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Simi. Sam Cooper, Global News investigative reporter. Now, this extensive news story that he's just talking about this morning is up online at globalnews.ca. And essentially, it has to do with this crazy story of the Markham Illegal Casino Mansion and the links that some of the suspects in that case have back to BC, something I'm sure they'll be very interested in at the Cullen Commission, which does resume today. The Cullen Commission have been on pause, right, during the election campaign. Now, of course, they are back in full force, so lots for them to talk about. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I guess now that it's kind of over, initial results have been counted, we can talk about the BC election campaign and kind of put it into perspective as to where it is in BC politics. Joining us now for more on that is Kara Camcastle, who's a professor of political science at Simon Fraser University. Kara, thank you very much for uh, joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. So what did you think about that on Saturday? That was a fascinating election. There were many firsts in it as well. Okay, so what did you find so fascinating about it? To start with, of course, we expected through looking at the polls that the NDP would win a majority, but the extent to which the NDP won seats in liberal strongholds in the metro Vancouver area was surprising. Yeah, that's, that sounds really something we've seen before, is it? No, uh, not at all. For example, in Richmond and North Vancouver and Fraser Valley. And even so, back in the days of the 90s, when they won that majority government uh, with Mike Harcourt, did we not see anything like this? No, not to the same extent. Uh, Exactly, no. Uh, This is unusual. So what do you Uh, think did it for them? Perhaps, well, looking at the BC Liberals also want to get the answer. We have to look at both parties and the dynamic there. Uh, the the uh, difficulties that the BC Liberals had in this election. Uh, there are many factors. One of them, of course, was the leader. Um, unfortunately, he, he uh, had some difficulties in the debate. Uh, I seem to 
seem to have some uh, lack of passion. Uh, as, as, um, and also perhaps the donations, the, the way in which the regulation of financing has changed. Yeah, can we talk a little bit about that as well? Because I think that didn't get enough discussion during the campaign is that those rule changes that have been made to who can donate and how much seem to have leveled the playing field. That's true. And they give an advantage to the Greens, uh, which um, the Greens uh, depend on more on individual donations and on smaller donations. Um, the BC Liberals have in the past depended more on corporate donations. Uh, and uh, that, that hit them hard, I think. So you're thinking without that money now, they were not able to run the same kind of campaign that they were used to? Exactly, yes. Interesting. So do you think one particular message resonated, or is it just that people were voting to get it over with? Uh, one particular, of course, the pandemic itself and um, the way in which the NDP were um, very adept at um, showing how they were going to spend um, uh, and uh, on services and spend on new inf- new projects like new hospitals, new schools, especially in liberal strongholds. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. The, pa- the pandemic really seemed to change things, though, in terms of people's priorities, didn't it? Because usually people want fiscal responsibility and they want to tighten belts, and that is not what we heard this time around. No, not at all. And yet still, uh, climate change was important uh, as a second underlying theme because uh, the Greens did make uh, inroads. They did hold on to their seats that they had uh, previously. Uh, and uh, and they uh, strong second places in, on, on Vancouver Island and also making a breakthrough on the, on, the, on the mainland as well. Yeah, let's talk about the role of the Green Party for a moment because people seem to think that a vote, you know, some analysts think when they look at that, oh, you vote for the Green Party, it's a vote taken away from the NDP. But that's not really the case, is it? Because I think it takes away from both parties in some cases. It does, uh, and uh, this is what uh, some of my research is showing, that the support is coming from both the centre-right and the centre-left. The Greens are in the centre, uh, and uh, they have policies that are they're fiscally conservative and socially progressive, uh, and so they can appeal to both sides. And, uh, of course, in this ma- mainland uh, riding of West Vancouver, Sea to Sky, it has been traditionally liberal. Right, that's the writing that they won. So they lost their yeah. old leader's writing. That would be Andrew Weaver's writing. Uh, yeah. And they won, looks like right now, over on the mainland. How significant is that for them to break out of their Vancouver Island stronghold? Well, that's very significant. Uh, it, because it provides uh, the um, psychological, uh, reduces another barrier uh, that people might have. And it, and it makes them, it, it again reinforces the idea that the Greens could be an alternative. Um, for some voters uh, that uh, want something that is uh, a party that is focused on climate change, but still fiscally uh, right. more responsible. What do you attribute their success to? I mean, I think there's no doubt that Sonia Firstnow did very well in those two debates and got a lot of attention during the campaign. Excellent. Yes, uh, she she was able to communicate very clearly her message and uh, also provided uh, um uh, an opportunity to show that the Greens are um, can work with other parties. They're collaborative and not so hyper-partisan. Uh, and uh, at the same time, this riding has been a riding where the Greens has, had had a strong showing in 2000 and, for example, thir- uh, 17, right. as, as a second, uh, 28% of the vote. Uh, and uh, the, the, the person who... Um, is, um, 
Jeremy uh, Valorant is is going to be um, Valerian is going to be. Uh, he has the experience of politics. He was a, municip- a municipal councillor before. Right. Does it help with yeah. the familiar names that when you get we've gotten some local yes. politicians throwing their local hat in? Local politicians. Yes. That's right. Now, I know that Sonia Fursno several times over the weekend talked about Nelson Creston, another area where they feel like they could have a, a breakthrough. So clearly it sounds like they've got their eyes on some other writings. Uh-huh. Yes, that was uh, very close. And we still haven't counted all the ballots, of course, uh, between the, the NDP and the Greens. And there's also potential there because the Greens have, in the past, um, had a strong showing in that area. And uh, there is a strong um, environmental movement uh, for over many years in that area. So what do you think this means then uh, moving forward? So technically the Greens won't get as much attention because they're not the opposition. The BC Liberals will be. But if the BC Liberals are in, you know, kind of turmoil looking for a new leader and things are changing there, what kind of a role does that leave, do you think, for the Greens? It, 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 um, it leaves them a very good role in the sense that they can, um, perhaps in a sense, advantageous in that the uh, the NDP have now the burden, the responsibility to deal with some of these problems, the pandemic, urgently. Uh, and uh, if something goes wrong, uh, they're the ones that are going to be blamed. Meanwhile, the Greens can keep suggesting new ideas, new new um, bring in forward new uh, private members' bills. And uh, and act as if they and, and act as well as best they can to show that they have constructive solutions to the problem of economic recovery. Mm, it's going to be an interesting time, isn't it? Yes, looking forward to watching it. Not that any time isn't interesting when it comes to BC politics, but Kara, no. th- thank you very much for your time That's on that true. this morning. Thank you for having me. It's Kara Camcastle, professor of political science at Simon Fraser University. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things to break down here about the campaign. But of course, when we talk about the results, we talk about preliminary results because we know that the mail-in ballots, something like half a million of them, have not yet been counted. This is Mornings with Simi. In a little over a week, it will officially be voting day in the United States. And if you're like me, you think, oh, great, it'll finally be over the last couple of years of talking about it. No, maybe not. That might just be the beginning. Joining us now is our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Giacchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, let's talk about what happens after the election with the results. What are we hearing about that? Well, look, President Trump has said during a number of times now, either in town halls or in debates, that he will, uh, you know, take the uh, results as they come in uh, and and not try to dispute them. But there are, you know, calls to question as to whether or not the president might actually try to contest any of the outcomes, especially if we find that the electoral vote between or the, the electoral count between the two of them is closer than what is being predicted in polls right now. Some polls show a blowout for Biden. But if we see something that's just within a couple of electoral votes, there's a very good chance here that the president may simply say, look, it wasn't true. It's a rigged election and kind of sow some concern that way. Is there enough concern about those actions that there is like a response to it? Has he been asked about this? And what has he said? Well, look, the president has been asked if he would, uh, if it, what would happen if he didn't believe the results. And that's something that's simply, he won't answer forthright, but says that it could wind up at the Supreme Court. And that's important because tonight we are likely going to see Amy Coney Barrett, uh, be moved to the Supreme Court, which would put a uh, conservative majority, but it would also put three of President Trump's selections on the high bench, meaning that if this did make it to the Supreme Court, this potentially could go in Donald Trump's favor. There's a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of uncertainty as to what happens if 
if the president doesn't like the results. So where are the close calls? Like which states are a toss up right now? Well, the close calls are the battleground states, and that would be Florida, that would be North Carolina, that would be Pennsylvania, where the races right now are Joe Biden's holding the lead, but it's within the margin of error. And while Joe Biden doesn't need to win every state, Donald Trump does. That's why you see him making these trips to North Carolina three and four times in just over two weeks. That's why he's made so many trips to Florida. But what's important to look at is what Trump is doing this week. He headed to Maine over the weekend and goes to Nebraska tomorrow. There is one electoral vote in each of those states. He won them hand last time, and he is now in a kind of panic to ensure that he gets that one vote because that's the one vote that could be make or break for him. It goes to show the math is just not on Trump's side right now. And a lot of that has to do with fundraising too, doesn't it? I mean, he the rallies that he does, the appearances that he makes, that also means that he doesn't have to spend money advertising there. He doesn't have to spend money advertising, and that's good because he simply doesn't have it. He's hemorrhaging money compared to where he was at the beginning of the year when he had, you know, he's raised over a billion dollars over the last couple of years. He's down to $60 million in the bank. Joe Biden had a massive $300 million-plus haul in October alone. The president has pulled his spending in the states where he realizes that it may be kind of uh, a wasted effort, and he's putting his focus uh, on the places where he feels that he needs to beat Joe Biden. It's also worth pointing out here that Joe Biden is going to Georgia tomorrow, a state that is so reliably red the democrats haven't won it since the early 90s it's technically in play right now and so too is texas that is how kind of wonky this map is from where it was four years ago i don't understand that (laughs) so you're telling me texas is a close race Texas is not only a close race, it's a competitive race. Donald Trump is likely going to win, but it's a state that has been gradually turning purple over the last couple of years, if not the last decade or so. Democrats are making gains right now and potentially could pick up a Senate seat. It's likely going to remain in Republican hands, but Kamala Harris is heading to Texas this week. That goes to show how much uh, the map could potentially be tipping towards Biden, and they are doing what they can to take advantage of it. Right, so it sounds an awful lot like, Reggie, that we can glean a lot of information from where the candidates are going to be this week. Absolutely. The fact that they're going to these certain states, you know, whether it's going to Nebraska for Donald Trump, whether it's going to Georgia, whether it's going to Pennsylvania, like Trump is going again tonight, those are the states to keep an eye on. There's a handful of votes that are available in Pennsylvania uh, that could become make or break. If Donald Trump doesn't win Pennsylvania, he doesn't win North Carolina, he doesn't win any of those upper Midwest states that he took back in 2016, it's almost uh, over and done for President Trump. Whereas Joe Biden can afford to lose a couple of those Midwestern states if he makes the pickup in something like Arizona. If he makes that pickup in something like North Carolina. Well, Reggie, I hope you have a vacation scheduled in the next month or two. I think we have one coming up in March. March? (laughs) After what you've been through the last couple months? Nobody knows what's going to happen to the end of this year. So we're just kind of pretending 2020 doesn't exist and look to 2021. Okay, well, we'll be talking to you again. Reggie, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. That's Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. You know, you think, oh, two years they have been talking nonstop about this election down there. It's finally going to be over coming up next Tuesday, so a week tomorrow. And then you're Reggie telling us, no, that might not actually be the case depending on how close the results are. It's craziness down there. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it has happened. A school here in BC has now been closed for a couple of weeks due to a COVID-19 outbreak. We thought let's talk a little bit more about that this morning with the help of Vancouver area elementary school teacher and education columnist Stephen Price, who joins us now. Stephen, good morning. Good morning, Simi. So are you surprised by this or was it feeling like it was inevitable? Well, I think we definitely were expecting as teachers that there would be uh, 
exposures and outbreaks and, and that that was uh, inherent to the plan. Right. So now we've got the school that's closed in Kelowna for two weeks because they've got an, a number of cases there. Do you see that happening elsewhere? Like what's been happening and what you've been hearing about? The uh, Yeah, I think that the, the, the closure is is the right move. We've seen in other um, in other schools where there has been a number of cases that uh, that parents then keep their kids home, and uh, and so you have this situation where you've got maybe half the kids in class and half the kids at home, and that's actually much more difficult to to plan for and teach in if then having all the kids at home. I think we we likely will see further um, further outbreaks. Um, because that's that's just the nature of of, uh, of the pandemic, right? So, do you think parents and it sounds like have been taking matters into their own hands if they have a concern? Uh, well, definitely the parent group has been active, and I'm and and certainly I support any individual parent's decision around how they want to manage their risk over over COVID, and 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 so we see that when there when there are exposure notices that go out, um, definitely parents are are keeping kids home or or, or being extra cautious around. Around how they uh, how they approach sending their kids to school, and, and that's that's something I think that all teachers would support. So, could the school plan be improved, Stephen? Like, what would you do? What would you suggest? Well, I think um, you know, earlier this month we had the US CDC uh, change its advice regarding airborne transmission, and and so I think a, a, a retuning towards the science. Where are we uh, now? And, and being transparent about how we're. Um, how we're assessing the science around airborne transmission, and if, if it is more airborne than we thought, then uh, then masks obviously become part of the question, and, and and hopefully part of the equation. One bright spot is is that we have been asking for more transparency, or teachers have been asking for more transparency. Um, the the local teachers associations in Vancouver Coastal Health wrote to Dr. Daly, the chief medical health officer. And, and they're now actually working more closely to involve teachers uh, in contact tracing and, and, and working towards helping the medical health officers understand the, the ground level situations in each in our classrooms, which um, which is something that's uh, that's needed moving forward. Yeah, that's actually that's an improvement then. So that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. So there, I think we're you know the the. The good news, uh, despite the, the the closure over the weekend, is is that we are, uh, as a system, getting better at communicating about uh, uh, the ground level to the the epidemiology level, and and I hope that that leads to more improvements. Uh, I've also been seeing improvements in classes around ventilation. So the federal money that came late August is now being spent on things uh, like in my own classroom, uh, an air purifier. So. Hmm. So we're slowly seeing improvements. Right. All right, Stephen, well, we'll check back in with you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much to me. That's Stephen Price, a Vancouver area elementary school teacher and education columnist, talking about the changes in the system. Yes, a BC school has closed, just one in the Kelowna area due to a COVID-19 outbreak out of a precaution because of the number of cases. They're going to close the school for two weeks and uh, hopefully that will be enough for people to self-quarantine and get that situation back on track. This is Mornings with Simi. 
probably one of the most common phrases you heard over the weekend was preliminary results. When we talk about the election, what happened and where we're sitting at this morning, it's all preliminary results because we know hundreds of thousands of British Columbians voted by mail and those votes have yet to be counted. So we thought in case you've got some questions this morning about how everything breaks down, we thought we'd give you some information on that. So joining us now is Andrew Watson, Director of Communications for Elections BC. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Simi. Are you okay? You must have had a very busy weekend. <laughs> yes, it uh, it was certainly a busy weekend for sure. And where are things at this morning? What is Elections BC going to be doing this week? Yeah, so we're entering into the preparation for final count stage of the process. As you mentioned, um, all of the preliminary results that were reported over the weekend uh, are preliminary. Um, those are all the votes that were cast during advance voting this election, and there were a record number of those for advance voting around 680,000. And then again uh, on election day. So about 1.2 million votes um, were reported for preliminary results on election night. Uh, but of course, as, as you will call, um, we've got a record number of mail-in votes this election uh, and some other absentee votes too, you know, around 525,000 mail-in votes and around 85,000 uh, absentee ballots. So those can all be received anywhere in the province. And the first step in the preparation for counting them is to uh, send them back to the voters' district of residence. So we take them from where the voter cast the ballot um, or where the mail-in ballot was received and ship it back to the district electoral office uh, for that voter. And that's where they undergo those screening steps that are so important to make sure that Uh, Multiple voting hasn't occurred to make sure that the voter was registered uh, and that all of the legislative requirements are met. Um, And once that uh, screening process is complete, that's when we start the actual count of those ballots once they've been screened and and accepted for counting. And so what do we know about turnout at this point, Andrew? So we don't have a preliminary figure for turnout yet, although it's something that we're working to provide uh, this week. our sense is it likely will be lower than the 61% of registered voters uh, in 2017. Um, although, you know, right now we're at around um, 1.7, 1.8 million votes cast, and I believe in 2017 it was just under 2 million. So we'll have a better sense of that once we know how many mail-in ballots there are. Um, mail-in ballots could be received right until 8 p.m. Pacific time on October 24th. Right now, we have the figure for what we've received by mail, but we're still uh, calculating how many were dropped off in person on Election Day. Right. So that actually sounds like voter turnout could be pretty good. Yeah, certainly, you know, accessibility uh, is always a focus for us. And um, this election was no different. Uh, we wanted to make sure that voters you know, knew about all the opportunities to vote. And of course, in the context of the pandemic, um, how we were working to make sure that the process was safe. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's our role in terms of um, supporting voter turnout is just make sure that um, voters have lots of ways to cast their ballot and lots of opportunities and, and to make sure they know, you know, they have the information they need in order to participate. We heard a lot about that, though, on actual voting day on Saturday. That would be that it seemed quite quiet at the polls. So with all those other options, was voting on the actual day of down? Uh, it, it certainly will be over past elections. I mean, this election... We had uh, more votes cast before Election Day than we ever did before. So 
um, more votes cast in advance voting, obviously a really, really dramatic increase in the number of mail-in ballots, um, you know, over over half a million. And, and usually, you know, in a provincial election, um, mail-in voting is used by voters who are away from the province or traveling. Um, so, so far, far fewer. You know, in 2017, it was only around 6,500 votes cast by mail. Right. So was there any pressure, Andrew, to kind of speed up this process at all? Or is, are all the dates kind of set and there's nothing you can do about them? Um, well, they are set in legislation. Um, and with the system we are working under in terms of the legislative framework currently, um, you know, that, that preparatory time to count the mail-in ballots um, is, is really an important part of the process. Um, there has been legislative change, so it's likely that you know, in future provincial elections in BC, we'll be able to use uh, more technology to help the process go faster. Um, but for this election, you know, this is the framework we're working under, and um, the timing is necessary to make sure that the integrity is in place. Now, is Elections BC pleased with how things went with this uh, voting process, or some things perhaps to tweak or think about for next time? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think we always do a post-election review to look at what we can uh, improve for next time. I think that, you know, with the really dramatic increase in, in vote-by-mail, there was obviously um, administrative challenges for us to be able to scale that quickly, though I think that um, at the end of the day, we were able to provide that opportunity for, for voters who wanted it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we'll be looking at the election as a whole. Um, certainly, it was a, a very unique election in terms of the number of voters voting by mail and, and the fact that it was held during a pandemic. Um, but uh, we'll be looking at the process from start to finish to see what we can we can improve for next time. All right, Andrew, thank you very much. Okay, you're welcome. Have a great morning. You too. That's Andrew Watson, Director of Communications for Elections BC, talking about the process they will now be undertaking. Listen, kudos to Elections BC during this entire process. I think they have done an amazing job. I know people mail-in voted. A lot of people advance voted. They had record numbers for that. I was one of the advance voters. I thought the process was seamless, safe. It was great. Every step of the way, I have been impressed with the work that Elections BC did. We're very, very lucky in this province, in this country, uh, to be able to vote as safely as we did this time around. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In 2017, the BC Green Party won three seats. That was an historic breakthrough for them. And now here we are in 2020, and once again, they have won three seats, but a slightly different three seats, which makes all the difference for them. We're going to talk about the breakthroughs the Green Party had on election night. Joining us now is Green Party leader Sonia Furstenow. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Congratulations. Thank you. Happy to be here, Jimmy. So how are you feeling about how things went for the Green Party during this campaign? Well, I think given uh, <laughs> given where we were, that I'd been leader for one week and that we hadn't, uh, you know, really prepared in any way for an election um, because we thought that uh, that the NDP would adhere to the fixed election law and the agreement, we I think we did incredibly well. I'm so 
proud of what the party and the candidates and the volunteers and supporters have achieved. I'm so grateful um, for everybody who voted and supported us. It, it's, uh, you know, it was a, a bit of an existential election for us. It was, uh, I think. Why do you say um, that? Well, to to have started on election day, on the day that the election was called, um, with no candidates uh, having been nominated in any riding in British Columbia, um, and in the space of 11 days to have 74 uh, pretty impressive uh, candidates, and then to have had record-breaking donations come in throughout the entire campaign. It was an indication that... um, even though we were just getting up and running under new leadership, uh, the people of BC were were very supportive, and uh, I'm I'm grateful for that. And what kind of role do you see for the Green Party then moving forward? It sounds like there could potentially be some turmoil on the BC Liberal side. They've got a lot of issues to sort out. What kind of role mm. does that leave for the Greens? Yeah, I, I spoke with Adam yesterday. A couple of things. We're we're both very excited to get back to work. Um, you know, both in our constituencies and our ridings, but also uh, in the legislature. Um, we've already had a, a little round of uh, interesting emails about some, some issues that we expect are coming back to the, to the legislature. Um, and I, I think, you know, we had to balance in a lot of ways the, the two roles that we were playing under the minority government, the, the balance of power meant that um, we were we had the responsibility of, of being a partner with the NDP in a lot of ways, but also we were an opposition party. Uh, and so we're excited to kind of lean into um, an opposition role to hold the government to account, but also to show to British Columbians um, what, what a sort of constructive opposition can look like. So you can expect to see lots of private members' bills, uh, lots of uh, times when we're coming to the table, uh, not just criticizing, but with ideas and solutions and um, pass forward, uh, and at the same time, very much intending to hold government to account uh, on things that were said during this election campaign and uh, promises that were made, um, and continue, as we always have, to bring forward good ideas um, that we think will serve the people of BC. And what what's high on that priority list? You talked about potentially bringing some things back that didn't make it through before everything was dissolved. What's high on that list? Hmm. Well, that's what well, I'm looking forward to um, connecting both with uh, Adam and Jeremy Valeriot, our, our who looks like he's going to be the new MLA for West Vancouver State of Sky, and, and kind of working out those priorities. Um, I know that. Um, we all, three of us, have priorities in our ridings. Here in Cowichan, of course, for me, it's um, we have a housing and homelessness problem. We have a, an opioid and overdose problem that's very serious. Um, I also really want to connect with the, the teachers and the school district here to hear how things are going and, and how we can be of service um, to ensure that teachers are feeling safe and have their needs met in their classrooms as well as children getting everything they need to be successful learners. Um, and, and so it's, it's a combination of things right now, of course, the, focusing on what, how we're going to navigate through the second wave. The small businesses across the province are really struggling. Uh, the tourism sector, so Adam and I are, are already talking about 
um, kind of pushing on solutions quite urgently for for small businesses and, and tourism. Uh, and also n- noting that as we go into the second wave, um, we need to ensure that there's housing for people all over the province and, and especially the most vulnerable people. So there's no shortage of work to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are very keen to be uh, jumping back in and, and getting moving on it. You mentioned the potential breakthrough that the Greens might have over outside of Vancouver Island, right, in West Vancouver, Capilano. Mm-hmm. What do you credit that potential breakthrough to? Well, we, we did well there in the last election, but I think that, um, you know, the, the quality and caliber of, of the candidates, Jeremy Valeriot himself, uh, just an exceptional candidate, but also high quality candidates on the lower mainland. Uh, and, and, you know, people were um, resonating with what we have to offer, how we talk about politics and governance, um, the vision that the Greens have for the future of BC. And I think that what we saw in this election is, is we saw an increase in support off of Vancouver Island. Um, so we are, are starting to make headways into the rest of the province, and I'm really pleased about that. And as leader... Um, It's really my intention to spend a lot of time um, connecting with other communities, listening to what uh, needs are, and really finding a way to show that um, we are a party that that is here and that will serve communities well. And and I'm I'm very excited about the success we've had in West Vancouver Sea to Sky, but also Lower Mainland, uh, an increase in our our, uh, voter support, um, and in other parts of the province. One of the one of the toughest things was when we would hear from a riding where we didn't get manage to get a candidate because the you know the the speed right. with which we had to get our nominations and people would be so sad they couldn't vote for a green candidate in their riding so uh, aiming to have candidates in every riding next election for sure. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning and once again congratulations. Thank you, Simi. Always a pleasure. That's Sonia First Snow, the leader of the BC Green Party. They're pretty happy with their results. They uh, they got three MLAs heading back to the legislature, potentially three, two for sure. Adam Molson, Sonia First Snow, the third is potentially off of Vancouver Island, that West Vancouver seat, just waiting for the kind of recount on that and adding the um, the mail-in ballot. But it looks like they will have that third MLA as well. So different kind of caucus. Uh, we'll see what happens with the Green Party and also, of course, with what happens with the BC Liberals, what kind of voice will the Green Party have this time around? It's going to make the next couple of years very interesting. This is Mornings with Simi. So what are you going to be doing for Halloween? It's a Saturday this year. Now, if this were normal times, we know that would mean parties and celebrations and trick-or-treating but it's not normal times, right? Which means that we have to look for other ways in which to celebrate Halloween. Well, how about taking a bit of a walking tour? That can be physically distanced, right? You just need to know some stories, some great routes to take. Well, our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Ian Gibbs. He's the author of the book, Victoria's Most Haunted. That's available on Amazon, by the way. And also the soon-to-be-released Vancouver's Most Haunted. He's also the host of the podcast, The Ghost Story Guys, and he operates some ghost tours called Ghost ghostly walks in Victoria. And so Nikki asked him about one of the hazards of his job, ghostly encounters. I should clarify, I have never seen a ghost. I've felt them, I've heard them, 
I've never seen one. And I'm good with that. That's the funny part. I am not a ghost investigator. I do not go looking for these things. Have I experienced it? Absolutely. Do I go looking for it? No way. <laughs> so what inspired you then to to write books about hauntings in this province? I have always had the feelings, uh, even as a little boy. Um, and I grew up with a very, in a very religious house. So as far as my parents were concerned, that was, you know, evil. It was the devil. It was, you're making it up. You're lying. And, and I remember being really confused by that and, and hurt by that because I knew what I was experiencing. It wasn't until I read one of my first ghost books that I was like, Oh, I'm not weird. I'm, well, I'm weird, but I'm not weird, but I, I'm I'm one of these people. Like, I've just experienced something. There's nothing wrong with me. Uh, and that was huge. And combine that with my love of history, it's it's just been a great experience. And I have heard from people now who've read the book. And honestly, this was my, you know, it sounds so cliche, but if one person's helped, it's all worth it. Uh, but I've heard from people who've said, you know, I read your book and I realized, oh, okay. This isn't that unusual what I'm experiencing. Like, I don't need to be scared of this. And that's huge uh, because that's what it did for me. Um, for me, honestly, it was just a real opportunity handed to me. So it was not really one I could turn down. It, I mean, I was off the opportunity and I thought, oh, okay, well, we're doing this now. You know, that's it's just, <laughs> just the way it is. <laughs> No, I think there's really something to that, you know, describing what you enjoy about ghost stories. It's the same thing I enjoy about ghost stories, too, and why I enjoy doing this series, Haunted BC, every year on CKW, mm -hmm. because it's a mix of history, which I love, yeah. Yeah. as well as, you know, the, the cool and the quirky and the slightly creepy, and the folklore, which I yeah. even love the combination of those two things, this cultural folklore, yeah. a little dash of creepy and yeah. history well and, and and people we're telling essentially what we're telling are, is people's stories both yeah. the living and the dead and i don't know how you can go wrong with that i imagine that for your ghost tours this year things mm -hmm. are going to be a little bit different than years past because of the pandemic how is yeah. the pandemic affecting how you conduct your ghost tours everything's digital small groups Everything's outside. Nothing is inside. And while we're actually doing the ghost walk, we make sure we're stopping in places where people can spread out and, and be properly socially distanced. And you said that you're going to just outdoor locations. Could you tell yeah. me one or two of the locations that you go to and maybe just a, a brief little taste of kind of what, what ghostly apparitions a person might see at those locations? Oh, it's it's pretty neat. We have one, probably one of our most famous stops, Helm Canale. And uh, it's actually where I had my one ghost experience doing the ghost tour. It didn't scare me, but it, it definitely surprised me. The alley is famous. One of the things it's famous for is being the main route between Bastion Square and going out into the rest of the colony of Fort Victoria. And they used to bring the prisoners back and forth through there uh, in chain gangs. And there was one guy named Limey who was a bit of a frequent flyer in the prison system. He wasn't particularly horrible, but he would get drunk, get in fights, go to jail for a month kind of thing. Well, he said something to one of the guards that angered him. And the guard pulled out his truncheon at the entrance to Helm Canale to go back to the prison at the end of the day. And he struck Limey in the head and he hit him too hard. He killed him. And the guard was so annoyed by this, he basically said to the other prisoners, I don't care, drag him back. And uh, they had to. Uh, so they, they hauled Limey through 
the alley and, and back to the prison where they unlocked everybody. So now um, the story is that people will hear footsteps come up quickly behind them um, while cutting through the alley at night and turn around. There's no nobody there. Um, there's archways at one end of the alley and people will see someone kind of lean out a shadow and then lean back in. But when they go through there, there's nobody there. And the other thing that he was known for doing was uh, he would cough right in people's ears, like right beside you. And of course you'd turn no one there. I was not thinking about it when I went from the top of the road. I had about 40 people with me and I was trying to get into the alley really quickly because, you know, it's nighttime, it's downtown. You never know what you're going to find. So I like to get down there. And then if I need to keep people a little further up, I will. So I get down there and right as I stepped into the alley, because there's sort of a cross alleyways down there, right as I stepped into that little intersection, a voice, a man's voice right beside my ear said, Ian. And it was quite loud. And I turned and looked and there's no one there. And I'm like, whatever. And I kept going because I wanted to make sure the rest of the alley was clear. And then I got to my spot where I wait for the group to join me. And then the penny dropped. (laughs) And I was like, oh, oh, I know who that was. Um, He knows my name. Mm, Am I cool with that? I'm not sure. Uh, So there was this whole sort of, but I had a story to tell and people coming and I just sort of went on with it. And when I went back to the place where we all the guides started, I said to the guards, I'm like, hey, you know, i got a weird question for you, but uh, has anyone else ever had anything happen in Elm Canale? Two of the other guides put their hands up, and they're like, yep, and told me their stories. And I was like, okay, well, uh, good. You know, I got some confirmation there. But, it, yeah, it was interesting that he, he decided to kind of bark my name in my ear. <laughs> That's Ian Gibbs, author of the book, Victoria's Most Wanted, also soon to be released, Vancouver's Most Wanted, Haunted, I should say, talking to our Nikki Reitmeyer. This is Mornings with Simi. We're going to take a look at some campaign promises as well from the campaign. Some big ones, right? Like in the battlegrounds of Surrey, for instance. Uh, let's see, what are some of the things that we heard from the NDP who won a lot of those seats? We heard more about a Surrey hospital. We heard about SkyTrain out to Langley. Now, that was a big promise, one that even prompted a press release from Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. However, it's not just the provincial government that can make that happen. They can commit to it, but they're definitely going to need some uh, partnership on that to make that happen. And what about all those uh, ICBC promises as well that we heard on the campaign trail? How are we going to get those ones uh, squared away? People want to see some kind of rebate. And as well, what about all the COVID-19 relief as well that we could be potentially seeing? That $1,000 in COVID-19 relief to some families, depending on how much money you make, that's going to be a big one too. So now let's check in with Richard and find out more about that. Hi, Richard. Hey, Simi. How are you? Are you all recovered? Sort of. We're back to back to school mode, so it's a bit chaotic in our house this morning. So yeah, I guess back to normal as everyone else gets to experience normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it too. Uh, let's talk about some, uh, first of all, the briefing this afternoon. So is Dr. Bonnie Henry briefing or not? She is. So they've been moving this around a few different times as they're working out the logistics of what it looks like as we start returning back to the NDP government. And, you know, Adrian Dix remains health minister. John Horgan uh, remains premier. But it looks like Dr. Henry will be briefing uh, solo. No Adrian Dix today at 3 o'clock. It had originally been moved uh, to Tuesday as they were working out some logistical issues. But now 
Dr. Henry will be providing a briefing today at 3 o'clock, which is typical. Uh, we've seen this before the pandemic, through the pandemic. But now that you know we're out of the election cycle, and although the new cabinet's not been sworn in yet, the expectation still uh, is that Adrian Dix will remain health minister there. And it's just they're trying to figure out whether he'll brief or not. The reason he wasn't doing it in the campaign is because it would have been seen, obviously, as an advantage right. to him to get that media attention uh you know, every single uh, Monday and Thursday through the campaign. Okay, so more to come on that this afternoon. Let's talk about some of the campaign promises that are going to get a lot of attention now, uh, Richard. Which ones do you think there's going to be the most pressure on the NDP to keep? Yeah, obviously the $1,000 direct deposit into people's bank accounts. And that was one of those things where the NDP decided to make a a switch in policy uh, in terms of they were trying to figure out a strategy for financial support. And this is what they came up with after the Liberals announced they would cut the PST uh, by one point. Uh, or not by point. Get rid of it for a year, I mean. Uh, so that's going to be the big one. And then I asked John Horgan about it yesterday. And what he said uh, was that um, they're going to bring back... They're gonna, they don't know if they're going to be able to bring back the legislature uh, this year, uh, 2020, yeah, because they have they have to wait for the final right. count, they have to wait for cabinet, they have to wait for all of these things. And okay. so we'll see, that's that's the big one. And then the others, you know, are sort of longer term goals. We, we know this, none of the promises during this election really, rem, you know, stuck with a lot of people. Like, this was not a promise election, this was a personality-based election, this was a leadership election, right. this was a continuance of governance election, and so that $1,000 direct deposit is important and it's and people will be watching closely to see whether Horgan can you know based on how long it takes elections BC to count get his cabinet in place get that approved potentially bring back the legislature before the end of this year and uh, have the wheels in motion out of those that money in people's bank account by Christmas time okay but what about some of the other ones what about like SkyTrain to Langley what about yeah. the Surrey Hospital what about ICBC rebates so, so all of those things are just sort of part of the process I mean none of those things you mentioned require legislative change and you know we already have provisions in place around rental freezes and we already have you know provisions in place to start changing the process for strata insurance and you know they've already started the planning for new schools and they've already started the widening of highway one and and all of these investments will be things that will unfold over time and yeah Oregon will back be back on conversations with the prime minister because in terms of the SkyTrain piece, you know, there needs to be substantial federal money on the table there to get the SkyTrain to Langley. So all of those things will be sort of part of the process and does not require you know, the legislature back to make those immediate changes. Okay, so still, I guess we have to wait and see on that one too. But like ICBC will definitely be a hot topic, yeah. right? There'll be yeah, a lot of pressure so, on that one too. And, and, you know, we've been applying a lot of pressure. Before the pandemic, I was asking David Eby every week or two weeks about, you know, what is the financial state at ICBC? What are we looking at in terms of uh, decrease in, in risk because of the pandemic? And where are those savings? And what Eby has said all along, and this was a little bit of a trick that they played on the voter during the pandemic, is EB packaged up what he had been saying for months into what looked like an election promise, which is, in essence, if we've made money at the end of the year, that money will be returned to British Columbians. That's what he'd been saying through the entire process. And we have no idea if there is going to be money because 
We don't know what, you know, what sort of things have unfolded since the pandemic. And every other jurisdiction in North America, insurance companies gave money back to their customers because they saved money during that pandemic period. But part of it is ICBC is in the midst of a massive overhaul. Uh, the financial situation at ICBC is not uh fantastic uh and so all of those things get factored in so we'll see i'm i'm still of the thought that icbc will be making some money by the end of the year due to the decreasing crashes uh and uh, that will be returned to british columbians okay. likely in the new year so that's one of those things like you mentioned we got to wait and see right okay now final thought here then richard on in terms of new cabinet faces carol yeah. james won't be there which is going to be really tough i think for a lot of people for john horgan in particular but who might take her place at the at the finance ministry the one I'm hearing a lot about now is Selena Robinson. So the current housing minister uh, could move into finance. There's a thought prevailing that there needs to be a strong woman in that position. Uh, and Selena uh, Robinson fills that. Uh, Bruce Ralston is the other thought for finance, but it would be a much different finance minister's job than what Carol James did. Carol James wasn't just finance minister. She was the face of the economy for the government. And she would come and speak about financial measures around relief. It wasn't just about this is my budget, this is how we're going to sell it. Uh, The new role will be different. And, And I have a feeling, based on conversations I've had, there could potentially be a ministry, not a position created, a minister responsible for COVID recovery. And they would be what Adrian Dix is on the health side, they would be on the sort of recovery financial right. side, and that person would be the communicator, and that potentially could be David Eby. I think there's going to be a lot of movement going on, and yeah. again, there's a lot of machinations happening behind the scenes, and they could move a guy like Murray Rankin, who was elected here in Oak Bay Gordon Head uh, on Vancouver Island. Uh, they could put him into attorney general, again, a more traditional attorney general role one who's like the legal counsel of cabinet, whereas David Eby provided that counsel, but he was also very political in many of the decisions he was making around money laundering, around ICBC. And so you keep ICBC with Eby and you move him to a position where he can be more outward-facing, more political. Brenda Bailey, Josie Osborne, these are some women who could take prominent roles into cabinet. I think Katrina Chen will continue to get more responsibilities. Bowen Mai is someone that a lot of people are talking about. The question is, does Bowen Mai want to keep her independence as an MLA? Right. Or she want to take on the role of cabinet, which, which changes the way that you can speak openly and, and do a lot of the things that Bowen Mai has become famous for now. Okay. And so all of those things are what the transition team and Horgan's team has tried to figure out. They have seven open spots. Uh, there's no guarantee that every cabinet minister who's returning will be put back into cabinet. You'll remember that that Horgan never had a major cabinet shuffle in the three-plus years that he was uh, in charge. And it is time now to have some of that renewal. All right, Richard, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Simi. Have a great day. We'll talk tomorrow. You too. It's Richard Zussman, Global News Victoria reporter.